And welcome, 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 welcome to the welcome. I was going to say to the Sober Grand, welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. <laughs> I am here today. We are a recovery podcast uh, talking about all things recovery or lack thereof, depending on how you roll. And uh, my special guest today is Michaelis Jacoby. DJ Michaelis. So good to have you here. Um, I would like to get to know you because I don't really know you that well, but I know you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm sure we ran in the same circles. And I don't just mean in sobriety. I think even from way back in the day, uh, from what I've learned about you so far. Now, I wanted to uh, uh, welcome you to the corner. Welcome to the corner, sir. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> and uh, welcome back to California for now because I know you now live in uh, Bali. Yeah, yeah. But first, I want to kind of just go down, you know, in learning about your past, where you're from, where you were born, uh, raised, and and we can get into the other talk later. But for now, who is Michaelis? Who is Michaelis? Michaelis was a really uncomfortable child is what he was. But uh, <laughs> I was basically born in Santa Monica Hospital, and uh, the first home was in Reseda. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I went from there to Woodland Hills, Agora Hills, but I didn't ever actually go to schools in any of those areas. I went to a lot of private schools. So I went to um, Meadow Oaks, which was in Calabasas. Uh -huh. I went to a place called Kadima, then back to Meadow Oaks, then to Oakwood in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And then finally I went to Agora High School when I moved to Agora. But then I also went to do a school year in Israel for my 11th grade year and then went back to Agora for my 12th grade year. So I basically went to a different school like every two years, which was, you know, perfect for a geographic making kid, you know what I mean? Trying to run away from himself and his uncomfortability. So it was great. Mm, interesting. So when you say you were uncomfortable, uh, if I'm not mistaken, what's your nationality? You've you've got a couple, you're a mixture of a few things, correct? That's the worst part is I'm a Mexican, Filipino, Chinese Jew. Like, what do you do with that? You know what I mean? <laughs> it was a mess. How, how did that happen? Is, is Are your parents... Uh, is one of them Chinese or Mexican or Filipino or a mixture of all of them? How did the Jew part come into the picture too? That's interesting. I know. I know. Uh, so my mom is is like Eastern European Jew background. Mm -hmm. And then my biological father is Mexican, Filipino, Chinese background. Okay. So, okay. He left when I was like, I think two and a half. And my mom right. married a guy who was Israeli when uh, I was probably like, like around four years old. So, okay. yeah. And he adopted me and here I am. So in growing up, like in your childhood, were you picked on or I mean, uncomfortable because why? I mean, if you think about like, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, which dates me really well, um, mm -hmm. like the Ken dolls were pretty blonde yeah. and blue eyed, you know? Right. And uh -huh. uh, I was like this, you know, Afro kid with slanted eyes, big ears and big lips, you know, just... Mm -hmm running around and and yeah i was definitely picked on you know like i went to schools with all these really wealthy kids who had like mansions and every toy and all the new shoes and all that stuff like that and i just like you know i wasn't one of those wealthy kids my grandparents basically paid for this but my actual home was you know working class normal people and so mm -hmm. you know i just i didn't have all the stuff basically you know right and i live far so away you went, you went to a, you went to a private school with obviously it, a lot of people that go to private schools come from well two families. So a lot of the people around you were, were in your eyes, at least better looking more. They had more than you. Totally. Basically. 
Yeah, yeah. And I was definitely made fun of for sure. But yeah, I mean, I went to school with like Jerry Weintraub's daughter and Scott Carpenter, the astronaut's son, like stuff like uh -huh. that, you know? So right. it was definitely, it was cool. I wish right. that I knew what I know now about private schools, that it has nothing to do with the schooling. It's all about the connections, the networking and being placed in those social circles. But no one like told me that, you know, because like developing relationships with those people, that's what actually lifts you up into those social circles as an adult, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think my parents were like so focused on get good grades and this is a great education, but that's a lie. So, mm. yeah. So did you get good grades? Uh, I did out of fear, I think up until I was around sixth grade, but my behavior was already pretty bad. But as soon as seventh grade hit and the hormones hit, I mean, I basically just said, fuck it. And it was not uh -huh. good. Yeah, totally. So, and then when you say the behavior, so what do you mean by behavior? Was it just behavioral or did you start experimenting with substances? I started experimenting with substance probably around fifth grade. And it was really like not a social thing. I mean, I really just wanted the voices in my head to to shut up because I would just obsess about how everyone hated me. I was super self-centered in that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, I basically wanted to die. You know, I was like begging God to like take me from this earth in fifth grade. And mm -hmm. uh, in sixth grade, I, you know, was already at sort of a place of, you know, fighting kids and getting in trouble in that way. And then seventh and eighth grade, it was all for me about fitting into different social circles and focusing more on that than anything academic whatsoever. So, mm. and, and then, uh, <laughs> and you were living at this time with a stepdad and mom. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. My biological father disappeared. I found him actually when I was 20. So, oh, interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Okay. So, so then after, you know, as you were growing up in your adolescence, was it just full blown drug use and what was it? Well, it started off with just, you know, smoking weed. My parents smoke weed too. So I, I like snuck into their guest room and found their little weed pack and like uh -huh. tried to smoke weed there. But yeah, I mean, the beginning was alcohol and then it went to weed and then probably from weed, it went to some cocaine, which I didn't love. And then I was diagnosed with ADHD. So I was given Ritalin. So then I was just like crushing those up and snorting those. And then, you know, it just kept going through acid and mushrooms and did a lot of meth. In it's really interesting that you talk about uh, Ritalin. Were you prescribed Ritalin? So it's my understanding that a lot of children that get prescribed Ritalin is because they're hyper and it calms them down. As opposed to adults that get prescribed Ritalin, it's to help them focus more and be more attentive and alert, right? Or to, to be able to study better, if you will. So when were you prescribed Ritalin? Was that before all of this other drug use or during? Well, it was actually when I was 17 and it was a reaction to me and my mom trying to kill ourselves together. So we were both like sent to like psychiatrists um, after that. She got diagnosed with depression. I got diagnosed with ADHD, which is like another one of those fad diagnoses. Like I think like today it's bipolar, right? That's what everybody right. has. So, you know, um, I think everybody's body obviously reacts differently to different medications. And for me, I was focused, but I also had like that rush of energy and it actually made me really angry, Ritalin, mm -hmm. you know? So it was not, yeah, I was 17 and it was a mess. Right. So when you were on Ritalin, were you uh, abusing that or taking it as prescribed? I think I tried to take it prescribed, but I liked that initial rush. Mm -hmm. And then like the doctor definitely did not prescribe me to crush it up and snort lines of it, you know? So- right. 
that was like how I decided to do it because I enjoyed that feeling, you know. But uh, I've snorted lines of Ritalin. <laughs> you have to do that, right? We had you know? to. I mean, come on. At some point, we when you're an addict, you you'll snort anything. Totally, absolutely, and it, you know, it was it was awesome until I found meth, and then that was way much better, you know. You know, mm. way much better. That's good English right there. That, that street, <laughs> that street Ritalin. Yeah, exactly. The street dope. Yeah, um, so when was it that you got into say meth or, you know, I said, yeah, I think you said you did Coke, but that didn't work or it wasn't good for you. It was just such a waste of time. I mean, I don't understand how people love Coke, but people actually love it. But for me, I loved Coke until I became a crackhead, but that's a whole different story. Totally. I just yeah. felt like it wasn't super social for me, you know? And, and I really, I don't know. Meth had this whole other, you know, four day experience that like you just couldn't do with Coke. You know, you had right. to like use so much and there's just like up, down, up, down. So I just wanted mm -hmm. to like cruise. But the first time I did meth really was because of this girl that I was like madly in love with. She mm -hmm. invited me to this 311 and Cypress Hill concert. I was going to school in northern Arizona. And we went down to Phoenix to see this concert and she took me into the bathroom with her and she put like meth in this little piece of toilet paper and she said, here, eat this. And I wanted to sleep with her so bad. So literally she could have handed me poison and I would have eaten it. And uh, yeah, I saw that concert, met Be Real and then went back and stayed up for the next four days, like lying in bed naked, not even able to have sex with her, just like. You know, right. but then started a relationship. <laughs> started a relationship with her or with the meth? <laughs> uh, both, actually, which actually, yeah. you know, doomed the relationship. But that's a whole other story. So, right. yeah, 100%. So you said you were going to school at that time in Arizona. So were you uh, studious? I mean, like after high school, did you make it to college and did that last? I guess like going to school is an interesting way. I, I attended school. Like mm -hmm. I attended the campus. That's right. what I did, but I didn't actually go to classes. I went to one class that I really enjoyed. I was an English major of all things, but the class that I loved the most was a conceptual math class. And I think it's because there was like these three girls that were really beautiful in it. You see a yeah. pattern here. And I oh, kept, yeah. and the teacher was really awesome too. He was really an interesting dude and we got along really well. He was super sarcastic, um, but that was it. I was on academic probation after my first semester and then my second semester ended with a jail sentence. So, you know, aggravated assault and residential burglary. Ooh, that's not, those are not good charges. No, no, it's not good. The second, aggravated, the, second the word aggravated is, is to attach to any sentence, you're fucked. Like, yeah, totally. <laughs> like it depends on what state you're in, but like that shit's strikeable. So, okay. So then, <laughs> and that you went to jail out in Arizona? Is that where that happened? Yeah, but unfortunately, I moved from there to Venice Beach, and all that stuff was transferred to California, which did make me eligible for the strike thing. You know, I should have right. just stayed in Arizona, but I didn't. <laughs> well, yeah. okay. So earlier, when before we started the broad podcast, we were talking about our lives. I think, like I said, I think we ran in the same circles if we hadn't already met before, and we possibly met in recovery too, because you looked super familiar. Um, Venice Beach, we know that there's a certain culture, especially during that time. If I'm not mistaken, that probably would have been what the 90s, yeah, late 90s. Late 90s, I was living in Venice Beach off of like I told you, Sixth and Vernon, and, oh, and and there was a lot of uh, you know, a lot going on down there. I mean, totally. um, Phoenix House is in Venice Beach, and there's crackheads right outside of that rehab, you know, so it, it's not like uh, drugs aren't readily available in all areas of Venice. So 
during that time, uh, tell me when, when did your DJ career begin? Well, that's actually kind of when I started. So, and I wouldn't say my career started then, but that's when I first learned. So I basically, do you remember Logic at the West End? I do remember Logic. Okay, so like Logic that was, was, dope as fun. it was awesome, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, I was introduced to some of the best DJs at that place and, you know, became friends with like Mark Lewis and even Grant Plant from the UK. Like we're still yeah. in touch. Doc Martin, like all those guys. So Doc is a legend. He is a legend, man. I I played with Doc one time and, you know, I was supposed to open for him and and then they made it so that he opened for me. And like the first thing I said to him was like, I apologize. I'm like, I love you, bro. I don't know why you're opening for me. This is not the order of life right now, but, right. you know, it was really funny. But um, so, yeah, basically uh, I had this crew of people. We used to go to, you know, the West End. We used to go to EO, which was in West Hollywood. We used to just travel to these different clubs every night of the week, except for like, you know, Fridays and Saturdays. Cause that was kind of like when all the regular people went to stuff. Mm -hmm. And we used to go to this dude Soren's house in downtown LA. I know Soren. Soren's one of my dearest friends. Soren. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He was uh, deported. He's yeah. now, he's in a different country right now because he got in a lot of trouble for drugs. So I that's remember. how we know each other. We okay, cool. probably met at Soren's house. So do you remember how he used to DJ? I do remember. Okay. So like, he used to train wreck almost every other song and it would be like so cute because he'd be like so to fucking him it sounded really good to him it cool, right? really good. like nodding and his like little butt would be like bumping but like the yeah. beats would be like boom 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 you know yep and so we would be out at this house and and uh you know i just figured like i can't be worse than this you know what i mean and he's had these tables forever so i was like yo can you just show me like what stuff is yeah. And so he did. And so that's kind of like how I learned. And then I, you know, went on this homeless meth run for about eight or nine months and I lived in this buddy of mine, Joe's garage, and he had turntables there. And I literally just spent the entire time like mixing there. And my first job paying job was when I flew to Israel and I flew to Israel because I was escaping my second charge in mm -hmm. uh, America. And my dad had, you know, connections with the Israeli government. He was able to get me like another passport. I shaved my head. I bleached it white. I did the whole disguise thing and fled the country. Wow. And, yeah, totally. It was nuts. And, uh, you know, then I wound up DJing out there and I was horrible. But then I wound up, you know, getting a job at this like little bar called Hasrita, which means the scratch. And they had like these turntables that were so old, like rotary knobs, not even like up and down pitch faders. Right. And I knew how to DJ on that. Uh -huh. And so once like I did that and like I really mastered that, when I came back to LA, like it was just simple for me. And I think mm -hmm. you know Todd Bird? I do know Todd. He's yeah. dead now, but he actually gave me my first paying job in LA where I actually played with Marcus, Mark Lewis and a bunch of other people for the exotic erotic ball that he brought to Los Angeles from San Francisco. That was my I first. I remember that too. Yeah, totally. But you know, I just realized right now, Mikhail, it's like we did hang out at Soren's. I know for sure, right? You know, you know, that's so what we knew together. I knew yeah. you fucking looked. We just look a little bit older, but yeah, that's. I was there often. Soren and I go way back. I was actually DJing during that time for a, for a lot of years. Oh, um, cool. So that's why when you talked about drum and bass and all that, like that was what was hot back then. You know, depending, yeah. there was also a lot of house music. If you went to Hope's house, Hope and Sean down in downtown LA. Um, those after hours party and then the after hours after the after hours parties, the ones that went into the, like the weekdays, you know, where we just got lost in our addiction and alcoholism. It was like 
a lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun during that time. There wasn't a lot of like heroin use. There wasn't a lot of people that were overdosing. I often share about that when I talk right now, that we weren't, we weren't seeing this craze of like fentanyl and heroin where kids are using drugs that are going to kill them right away. If anybody was overdosing, it's because they were doing too much ecstasy and that's or GHB. And that was few and far between. So, so we both know that culture very well. Um, now, let me ask you, uh, you, you were mentioning earlier that a lot of your friends from back then, have a lot of them passed away? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, Ricky was like our first friend, I think, that died. He died in a car accident, I think, coming back from a party one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then, yeah, slowly but surely, people have either died or, like you said, gotten deported or been put in prison or, you know, um, yeah. I'm really... I'm really blessed. Uh, but yeah, Todd died. I think he overdosed. And my buddy Grasshopper, who really introduced me to the scene, um, he passed away as well uh, mm-hmm. about eight, just before I moved to Bali, actually. He just was trying to get sober. And right. he come to me to like take him through the book. And um, we started the process. And he was like obsessed with this girl. And he went to, I think, LIB and um, mm-hmm. hung himself on like a ranch gate to sort of like send a message to this girl, which was real crazy, you know, but real crazy. yeah, I understand it though. 100% I've been in that place. So, so you're 44 years old now, right? Yeah. You got sober. How many years are you sober? 22. So you got sober. How old were you? 20... 22. <laughs> 22 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Why the fuck did you get sober so young? Why? Well, um, I mean, what was your, was there a crisis? Did something happen? I mean, that's a pretty big decision to make at such a young age. I mean, I was looking at going to prison for 25 years of life. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. considered a crisis, but. Sure. I mean, it was motivation. <laughs> <Most definitely, yeah. laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would I mean, say, I would hope that you see that as a crisis. Yeah. What's funny is I didn't. So, you know, here I am. I, I finally got uh, arrested for attempted max- manufactured methamphetamine, right? Mm-hmm. Um and because of that whole strike thing, they, you know, the DA want to put me away forever. And uh, I got an opportunity. This guy, Bob Timmons, worked across the hallway from my lawyer's office. And my he overheard my parents talking to my lawyer. And he made a decision to come and, like, see if he could help. And he went and interviewed me and basically found out that, you know, yeah, I definitely considered myself an addict, which my parents told me to tell him. Like, I didn't even know what an addict was. And... Right. Uh, you know, he saw that I'd never been exposed to treatment or AA or 12 steps or anything. Mm-hmm. So he basically had a direct relationship with my judge and was able to transfer me into treatment in jail. They had uh-huh. an impact program in jail at Bisclu. And then uh, from there, I was court committed to a sober living called Liberty House, which was. A oh, very- my God. No wonder you stayed sober. <laughs> no wonder you stayed sober. Just a little structure. Well, I know. Yeah. What's his name? Larry? Isn't it Larry, Larry that owns it? He, yeah, he owned it, right? Yeah. And then he moved to Kentucky. So you're a product of the Liberty House, and that's I am that was like structured sober living in the 90s, right? Uh yeah, 99 when 2000 is when I got there. I graduated, I think, in 2000. I got there in 99. It all makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I love the culture of the Liberty House, although he moved to Kentucky. Um, Liberty House still has a lot of their alumni that they started another place called Awakening. Yeah, and totally. um, it's it's in California, in L.A. And and um, I, I very much respect what they've done and what they do. 
um, it's holding people accountable. It's like recovery in a whole different way. Like that nobody was really doing back then, except for maybe discovery at that time, there was a place called discovery as well, but there was a lot of branch offs that happened from places like Liberty and discovery. As a matter of fact, the place that I got sober was through a guy named Siamak Afshar, who, uh, his place was called. He used to um, run discovery. And actually I took over his job after him. Yep. That's it. He was that discovery. There's a different discovery now, but, uh, it's a whole different place. Like, but, but I believe that this, that discovery, she either shut down or something like that. Yeah. Something happened there. What was the yeah. treatment center? And Larry actually owned that too. Uh huh. So yeah, that for Do sure. you still talk to Larry? Uh, not so much anymore. It's been a long time, you know? He's so you were like one of the original dudes that went through that place. Yeah. I mean, I think it, I, I probably went there after it was about eight or nine years in existence, I think. So, but yeah, it'd been around for a little minute. But yeah. Everything, what a, what, a, what a trip this is. It's like that six degrees of separation. I think there's actually like a smaller degree of separation. Like 100%. Because we, we ran in the same circles out there for sure. You know, I remember Soren had that place in downtown LA. It was oh, right by Prince's old club. And um, it was like this upstairs unit. And yeah. It was just all night long. And then to hear like that you went through Liberty too. I've actually had my cousin go through there. It's it's really amazing. So who's your cousin? Um, my cousin was named Reza, but he, he didn't stay sober. It's a different Reza, not not DJ Reza. No, no, but was he like super buff and like in shape? Pretty pretty in shape. Yeah, yeah. I remember him, actually. Do I you? definitely remember him. Yeah. Yeah. He taught me to eat cottage cheese if I wanted to lean out and build muscle. But no, we were <laughs> friends actually. I remember that guy. He was cool. What a trip. What a trip. So uh, let's hear a little bit about your experience of, of when you went to sober living. What was that something that motivated you to be more serious about your recovery or what was it? What was it within Michaelis that you fucking took this thing so serious and took it by the horns at such a young age? Cause this is like inspirational to the youngsters. You know, I want them to know that people can get sober young and stay sober long-term rather than constantly have that thought of maybe I didn't have enough fun. Maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe I'm not a real hardcore addict. Maybe I can still smoke weed, all this shit. Why did you take it so serious? I mean, what helped is that I had like a five-year joint suspension hanging over my head and like five years of formal probation and all that was contingent upon me like staying in this house. So I had like consequences. I just, I was tired of being in jail and I knew that jail and prison sucked. So that was like one thing for sure. But the truth of the matter is, is that when I got sober, I was 100% sure I was going to eat mushrooms again when I was like five years sober, you know, because mm-hmm. I'd rationalize that, oh, maybe I didn't have a problem with that, you know? So like, right. it wasn't that like 100% commitment, but what up happening was, is, you know, going to Liberty house and um, starting to build a life that I enjoyed in sobriety, you know, and doing things that I loved, you know, just made me help like feel that I, I didn't want to do it any other way, you know, but, to be really honest with you, my first nine and a half years of sobriety was not amazing the whole time. I had some really dark times and it wasn't really until I was around 10 years sober that um, that real drive and love for sobriety really hit. You know, it's just because it took about 10 years of sobriety for someone to actually teach me what the real program of Alcoholics Anonymous was because I had worked the steps in so mm-hmm. many different ways following direction, doing what everyone told me to do, but right. it, it wasn't really the answer though. You know? 
do you, do you think that during that nine and a half years of darkness, because I mean, you you'd been going to meetings and everything, right? But you hadn't really uh, felt the essence of what like the recovery program consisted of. Is that what you're saying? Is well, that I why it was dark time? It was. Look, I mean, people told me to go to meetings, so I went to meetings. Right? They say stay in the right. middle, stay in the center, you'll stay sober. Yeah. They told me to mm-hmm. get a sponsor. I got a sponsor. The sponsor told me to call him every day. I called him every day. Told me to work steps. Right. I worked steps. They told me to like pass it on to other people after I finished working the steps, and I did that. You know, uh-huh. um, but like that's actually not the message of Alcoholics Anonymous, exactly. You know what I mean? And once I finally figured that out, and I sort of understood why I was not changing, and why I was not having mm-hmm. like a spiritual experience or a God-powered personality change, that's what shifted uh-huh. everything. Because what wound up happening was, is that I got really got, I got caught up in like managing my defects. And every time like, I would run into more trouble, I thought, oh, I have to, I have to write another inventory. That's going to fix me. You know, mm-hmm. um, I need to read that to somebody, you know, I, it, so it wasn't like I need to work with somebody, you know, right. that wasn't the message that was really being passed on to me. So that's, that's why it was hard. And it wasn't all dark. Like I definitely had fun and sobriety. I wouldn't be sitting here if it wasn't, but right. there were like seriously dark times like at five and a half years of sobriety and six and a half years of sobriety where i wanted to die i didn't want to use because i knew that shit wouldn't solve any of my inner feelings i knew it would just compile problems but i definitely did not want to be here anymore sounds similar to the experiences or the thought process that you had when you were like in the fifth grade totally just wanted you didn't want to be on this earth anymore yeah i hear this quite often you know i hear a lot of people talk this way and i so was it because possibly because uh, you hadn't yet completely surrendered to higher power God. Is that what it was or what was it? I didn't know how to surrender to higher power. And I also, mm-hmm. I was stuck on having a decent amount of time and not being as healthy as I thought I should be, you mm-hmm. know? And also like going to meetings and hearing people with less time sharing about promises happening for them that I didn't feel right. were happening for me and feeling mm-hmm. envy you know, and also her pride around that stuff. So that's really what it was. And just being really frustrated and hating myself for not being, you know, fixed, basically. So at 10 years, how did the shift in perception and and attitude and action take place? How did it take form? What happened at 10 years? So Larry was actually sponsoring me just before this time. Mm -hmm. And there was this whole like debacle at Liberty House with uh, kombucha, actually. So I was, this is a really weird story, but fuck it, I don't care. So no. basically what was going on is that uh, I had this sponsee, this guy, Ben, who Larry had kind of a thing for, you know? And Larry was my sponsor. And Ben was drinking kombucha, and I drank kombucha too. And Ben approached me and said, um, I'm feeling fucked up from drinking kombucha. I'm like, you are, that's weird. Like, I don't feel that, but Mm -hmm. if you're feeling fucked up for it and you're intentionally drinking it to get that feeling, stop. And I'll stop drinking it just to be an example for you. Mm -hmm. And immediately I called Larry and I was like, yo, this is what Ben told me. I'm not really feeling what he's feeling, but this is what I told him. And that was it. And he was like, cool. And then Ben came over to Larry's house and I was there too. And he also like admitted to basically taking medications that make you drowsy prior to his sleep so he was kind of like 
in that place. Mix the kombucha with the medications. <laughs> just trying to feel a little high, you know, basically. Yeah. So it all kind of made sense for him. So Ben went into Liberty House, right? And uh, I was still working with him, which was a weird thing. And then basically like a month or so passed, I think, and uh, Ben got into Larry's ear and basically told him that he didn't believe that I didn't feel anything from the kombucha and that I need to change my date too. Oh, because Ben changed his date, you know, and that was like, oh. a so basically uh, Larry, I think I was at Paris at this time and Larry messaged me and he's like, this is what Ben said. I said, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to be home in two weeks. Let's sit down and talk about it. Right. And so Larry's like, cool. And then maybe a week later before I even get home, Larry sends out an email to all the parents and all the graduates of Liberty house um, saying that I had relapsed and then two other people had relapsed. And I felt really betrayed and hurt by this. And then he mm -hmm. put a, a thing on Facebook as well, which didn't mention my name, but it definitely, I mean, if you knew, you knew that he was talking about me and mm -hmm. that really, you know, bum me out. And then later on, I found out that the kombucha that I was drinking actually wasn't processed in a way that even produced even trace amounts. And, you know, my mm -hmm. reaction to that was I sent him that information with just the title, fuck you. And that was kind of like the end of that, which later on, right. like, he actually wound up apologizing to me for that. And there was a time mm -hmm. we asked to, you know, go back and work for him and kind of take over the house, which didn't work out. But um, so that was all fine. So that was the inspiration for me to not have him as a sponsor. So I was sponsorless and I asked this dude, Cliff, who was in the, you know, A&R music industry at the time. Um, and he basically said, I can't sponsor you right now. I've got too many people, which wasn't right. the case. Cliff was loaded and he wasn't telling anybody and he OD'd like not too long after that. Wow. But he said, I've got this guy, Deezer who really knows his shit you should go. Deezer? Deezer D? Deezer D, who also passed away this year, right? He did pass away, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. So I remember Deezer's like, yep, show up my house 8 a.m. Tuesday morning. And I was like, okay, cool. And I remember showing up at maybe 8.02, cause I was like trying to find his apartment building. He opened up the door and he said, you're late. And he closed the door. And I was like, shit. So I called him like right back and he's like, meet me in my house next week, Tuesday morning, eight o'clock. I said, okay. So he basically introduced me to this process where he took me through the book in a way that has been passed down from like the first hundred people after the book was written, you know? Mm -hmm. So this really methodical way with certain prayers and things you write in there and underlining, highlighting explanations and historical background and blah, blah, blah. And it really explained for the first time how the program works and what the disease of alcoholism actually is. Mm -hmm. So that's what changed everything for me. Um, and I've been, you know, working literally with as many people, taking as many people through the book as I possibly can in all of my spare time every day for the last 12 years. So sometimes I'm working anywhere between one and four people a day. And that is, wow. that's, that's changed. Awesome. No, it's changed so my life. How did Deezer pass away? I think he had a stroke, right? I think he had a heart attack, right? He had heart problems when I met him. Heart attack. So, yeah, I think it was a heart attack. So he was a good man. He was. What the story always tells about me was that he knew I was his boy when, you know, he was coming out of the hospital and I would come over to his house and help him put his socks on, you know, and he like really loved me for that. And 
you know, we were really close and we spent a lot of time together. He was a good man for sure. God rest his soul. I, I didn't know he actually passed away. I knew that there, he had some health conditions and something had happened and, and wow, he's gone too. Yeah. Love these are D. Um, okay. So why did you move to Bali? Oh man, I got in a place with my career where I just released uh, an EP that I produced and it was picked up by a label. So I knew that I could be anywhere in the world and continue that. And uh, that was actually my plan. And also NASCAR kind of made me their official DJ. And I, you know, that seemed kind of a promising thing. So I've always wanted to live in a paradise island. And I was at a point in my life where I was committed to choosing happiness and had the courage to do so. So I gave away all my shit to everybody with complete faith that I would be taken care of. And I went to Bali. And you've been taken care of, haven't you? Like beyond anything I could ever describe in every moment. Do you love living there? I do. I do. But um, I've grown to a place where it doesn't matter I live anymore. I thought that that was like I needed to be in a place like Bali in order to feel a certain way. But today I feel that way everywhere. I mean, I came back to America to handle like, you know, reinserting myself, you know, as a citizen here and like going to the DMV, going to the IRS, going to the phone company. I mean, all these the bank, all the places that everyone hates. And I fucking had the best experiences at all of them. I love them, you know, so really it doesn't matter where I am today. I'm just stoked be there it's interesting that you just said that right now because when austin who puts together the flyer for this particular podcast every week and i send him a, somebody's bio and picture um i uh, you know you, how you told me just come up with whatever topic i want i i put wherever you go there you are and and basically i i get that like it doesn't matter where the fuck i am as long as i'm comfortable in my own skin i'm good and when you have recovery and you've embraced it and you're living you know, living proof and it's just within your inner core, within your essence, then it doesn't matter. So when are you moving back to California? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. I, I'm actually here right now. I mean, I don't, you know, there's, I can't get back to Bali right now anyway. So I'm just here. I, I may not go back. That's the funny thing. But and you may, you, you may not be able to go. You can't get back right now because of this whole pandemic and everything that's happening or what? Yeah. They changed the restrictions after I already came to LA in terms of like visa stuff. So I got here and then they shifted everything. But it's funny, it's like, you know, this idea of closure, I don't need it, you know, because there's yeah. no end or anything. So it's just mm -hmm. like, everything is just flow and everything's in the moment. So if well, I selfishly, the reason I ask is because I kind of want to kick it with you. Like I want to hang still, out, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we be vibing today. This is, I feel very comfortable talking to you and hearing you like, I know you're a deep spirit. And I told you that before this even started. And I don't even really like, we, we haven't been friends over all these years, but it just, I feel like this connection to you that's very strong. And, and you also, you have a book that's coming out. That's, that matters a lot. Tell us about your new book that's going to be released. Uh, it's called The Spiritual Revolution and A Precise Path to Personal Peace. And basically what it is, is um, look, a lot of people think that alcoholics own fucked up thinking and alcoholics own depression and anxiety and fear and jealousy and anger and feeling uncomfortable in their own skin. But all that shit's just the human condition, right? Mm -hmm. So we are blessed enough to have a way out of that, you know, and a way mm -hmm. to like tap into our divine purpose and practice it. 
but there's so many people out there who don't have that that are don't get introduced to that because of Alcoholics Anonymous, they're not alcoholics or addicts. So I basically wrote a book based on my experience going through the big, so it's a big book for normal people or not normal, whatever, non-addicts, non-alcoholics. Mm -hmm. So it basically, I've extracted all the different concepts that I've learned from going through the big book. Part of the way it works is also based on how I was taught to teach other people the big book. So as you read this book, you need to read it with someone and teach them and take them through it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's definitely an inventory process and an amends process. And, you know, it's all about, uh, you know, developing relationship and gaining access to your own inner power is basically what it is. I love that. And I'm so happy that you've written this book. I, I want you to know something about right before pandemic happened. I mean, I'd already been a, a fan of Russell Brand. And, um, and so, and, you know, he has his version of the steps and I've read many of his books and I actually went on a retreat that he had put on. He was down here in Wonderland, Wonderlust at, in Hollywood. So we'd go up and just listen to him speak. And he's, you know, he's definitely a force to, to be reckoned with. Like you got to try to catch up with what he's saying. Cause he talks so fast, but like he's got his version of, of the steps. And what was really weird is that I was going because I, I've always been fascinated by who he is just as the way, he, not because he's a celebrity, anything like that. A lot of people think that like, Oh, you're starstruck. You're just trying to race, race and follow after Russell. That's not even the thing. It's what he's talking about. Like he's, he's definitely tapped into, into some shit that's very attractive. And I think that other people recognize that too. So after, um, you know, kind of, Jumping on the Russell Brand wagon, I, I got a couple of my friends who actually stopped being friends with me during pandemic, but they would say things like, the guy's selling the steps and that's bullshit and that goes against Alcoholics Anonymous and we do this thing for fun and for free and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, okay, I mean, to each their own, you can think what you want, but like, he's not actually sitting down with someone and saying, let me sponsor you and I'm going to charge you for my time with you. He's just right. he, he's just putting it out there. There's other versions or different ways of actually going through the steps. It's not the end all be all. At the end of the day, the steps were written, you know, by Bill, and it wasn't his original writings. It was six steps that were there before, and then he expanded on them. I believe even in like six and seven, he didn't want to use the word character defects two different times, so he just called them shortcomings in step seven. So it, it's it's just interesting. So I I. I look forward to this book whenever when do you think it'll be out um i'm actually going to pass it off to a literary agent this week i just finished up some editing and she's going to give me direction as to what to do with it so nice i haven't decided if i want to go with a big publishing company or to self-publish um mm. but yeah it will be out this year i promise 100 these days these days you can self-publish i think through amazon it's not that hard yeah totally but again, like, I don't know. I mean, I really see myself like doing uh, seminars and book tours and all that promotional stuff. And I actually even want to start traveling to, you know, college, university campuses and, you know, teach this as a course because it's a textbook, you know, it's not just, and we learn about math yeah. and science and social studies and all that stuff like that, but why not learn how to feel comfortable in our own skin? No. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I love I love uh, what you were bringing up about how a lot of alcoholics they because of learned behaviors or uh, conditioned thinking. A lot of times people think that they're a piece of shit and they remain sick and they're going to keep being sick and we're always going to be sick and that's that's 
I don't, I don't buy that. Like that's not what this, we didn't come here for new freedom and new happiness so that we can remain sick. That's not totally. what it's about. That's wow. not what recovery is about. This is to come and find the best version of ourselves and truly live in and through it and, and have a reason for living. Um, so I have one last question for you. And I, I think this is very important. Uh, obviously we talked about, you were saying um, fentanyl is the new rage. Are you experiencing a lot of guys that are asking you to take them through, you know, the recovery process that were caught up in this particular drug? And do you, are you able to, um, you know, try to help them and, and get them through this so that they don't keep going back to that lifestyle? Have you, have you seen this stuff in Bali, for example, or do you got guys out here? Uh, I mean, not so much in Bali. I mean, there's definitely people on pills and, I mean, that stuff is actually pretty accessible there. Just you go to the pharmacy, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, my experience is that it, it really doesn't matter what anyone has been taking in terms right. of, like, if they're ready, they're ready. Right. Know? It'll all kill you. If yeah, it totally. you. If it doesn't kill you physically, it'll kill your soul. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, for a lot of people you know, it's a stuff that like people are prescribed or, you know, the legalized weed or the idea of microdosing mushrooms or the idea of, you know, taking DMT trips here and there. Like there's all kinds of different, you know. Will you, will you expand on that please? Because right now there is this latest craze where for depression and anxiety and people that have a lot of mental health disorders there, it's being uh, promoted. It's being offered in some treatment settings this whole idea of microdosing, what is your, your outlook on my, microdosing mushrooms or, or um, ketamine or uh, acid for that matter? Like, what, what do you think about that? I mean, you really, this is really controversial. Do you really want my opinion? <laughs> I do want your opinion. I absolutely okay. do. I don't mind. All right, cool. So um, this has been my experience, okay? So I, I was also diagnosed with ADHD and depression and all yes. that stuff. And there are times where I've been put on medication, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I wound up getting off of it because I just didn't feel like me. Now, all this stuff that we're talking about is is the spiritual malady. I really right. think that like so many people are being diagnosed with these disorders mm -hmm. that really are just untreated spiritual malady, untreated human condition stuff. You know, I mean, that's really what I believe. And it's because you know, um, in dedicating my life to practicing a way to be the blessing, I've been able to not only treat all that stuff, but rise like way so far above, you know, uh, any of that stuff. And I've seen it heal other people as well, you know, but doctors are really quick to give out medications. Mm -hmm. And I think that doctors are really quick to diagnose because, you know, there becomes a dependent, you know, dependence uh, once, mm -hmm you know, a human being admits they're damaged. And I feel like a lot of people um, hold on to these diagnoses is almost like a, a badge of, you know, this is just who I am. Yeah, you know? it's their identity. Yeah, totally. And I just think that it's like um, people get really uh, complacent with the limited version of themselves. And I think that people can do much more um and they're way more powerful than they give themselves credit for so you know bill was looking for a spiritual experience and he you know dropped acid in order to do so but the truth of the matter is that 
if Bill had really done the work that was outlined in the big book and spent his time taking as many people through the big book as he possibly could, like Bob did, um, he probably he, he wouldn't keep looking for that spiritual experience. Yeah, because the other thing is that, look, you know, people have these spiritual awakenings, I'll say, through yes. microdosing or DMTs. And what I mean by awakening is they'll have an epiphany, right? But right. you can get that from reading a book. You can get that from all kinds of different. We have those all over our life. But to actually take that epiphany and put that into practical, consistent application to have an experience with it, right, which is the God-powered mm -hmm. personality change, like mm -hmm. that's where everyone falls short, you know. And that's yeah. why people are like continuing to go to these retreats and stuff like that to have these like epiphanies because, you know, they're able to hold on to that for sometimes a few weeks, sometimes a few months, and then they need to re-up because right. there's no way to practice it. So I found a way to have something that to do every day and every moment, which is basically retrain my mind to understand that my divine purpose is to be the blessing. There's never a absence of things to try to bless, whether it be a human being or an animal or just the moment. And, uh, you know, that always allows me to feel connected uh, and I don't ever want to disconnect. And I feel that all these external things that you put in your body is actually another form of disconnection and searching for an external thing to fix an internal problem. So, well, that's, that's not opinion. controversial at all. Then uh, I thought you were going to take it in a whole other direction. I thought, oh my God, he's going to actually sit here maybe and tell us that people should use that stuff. No, you are absolutely correct. I mean, I, I can't agree with you more. There's a lot of people that will argue it up and down and say that, um, you know, people with mental health, that, that it's working, it's helping. It's, but I've actually seen it go in other directions. I've seen people with mental health be, go to certain centers and do this, and then it takes them in a whole different direction, as in full-blown going back to their drug of choice or, or you know, losing their mind and really, like, being out of their mind, having that, like, a nervous breakdown or even uh, not, never coming back. So I'm so happy that you talked about that. It's all about the malady. In, in Can so I say many one more thing, though? Absolutely. So absolutely. I'm not saying – I'm not against medication. There's absolutely right. people out there who have, you know, mental illness to a severity. They need to be medicated, some of them, yes. Right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that at all. I don't want that right. to be misconstrued. But yeah. I do know a lot of people who are not in that place. They're just feeling right. feelings, you know what I mean? Right. And right. they can function. And for them, you know, and then, you know, this takes us down a whole conversation of maintenance and Suboxone and all those things too, which is right. like a whole other ball game, you know? So. Right. I think that, like I said, you know, I think that the medical community, medical community just like basically supports uh, human beings' limited beliefs of themselves. And, uh, you know, whether it's to make money or whether it's they think it's the best they can do or whatever, it's still mm -hmm. small minded thinking. And I think that they can, you know, help people do bigger and better things for themselves. I couldn't agree with you more. I appreciate you saying that. And you're, you're correct. When it comes to, there are some people that medication definitely helps them because if it's, if they're not medicated, then they too can lose their minds and possibly, you know, it could be very gruesome depending on what kind of events happen as a result of them not being on their medication. So I agree with you on that too. This has been powerful. This has been really good. You're a, you're a beautiful soul. It's so, so yeah. nice to, to be able to, to speak with you and get to know you better. And, um, you know, off the record, off the air, I want to actually hang out with you. So yeah, let's organize sure. the time to, to kick it together because 
you're good people, man. I, Thanks, and you, are you still DJing at all? Can we, is there any new EPs or anything coming out anytime soon? I actually retired. I just, um, I got to a place where I was like looking out into the club because I used to think I was bringing joy and happiness, but I just saw that I was like supporting people, you know, falling into oblivion and not connecting and just getting really messy. And I just didn't want to be a part of that. I really want to spend time helping people better their lives. So I retired in January and wrote a book and here I am. It's so. really interesting that you say that because I remember there was a time in the nineties, the, the late eighties and early nineties where we were hitting a lot of clubs and every once in a while I was sauced. I mean, I'm talking like I'm just eat out and fucking on a good one. And I remember somebody sometimes mentioning, yeah, that DJ, he's really good. Do you know that that guy's sober? And I think, what does that even mean? Like, <laughs> and they said, yeah, he spins a lot better because he's sober now. I'm thinking, really sober like i can't even fathom that right but i i think that was like the onset of understanding that some people that may have been in like involved in the drug culture drug scene club drugs especially or, or other drugs for that matter when they sober up they they can they perform better and and i used to think to myself like i can't understand i just don't get that but now i get it you know what yeah, i mean yeah. i really get it yeah absolutely. i appreciate you uh, you're you're a good man thank you for for coming out to the corner today um, I will be in touch with you and I hope to talk to you very soon. Signing yeah. out. Thank you so much, man. See you. See you.